I'm not in a hurry. I think maybe one of my favorite things is I rarely have to set an alarm. I rarely have to move quickly. And the slower we move, the more we see and the more opportunity we have to be kind. That was Mary Pfeiffer talking about the benefits of moving more slowly as you get older, but also at any time in life. And she's now 76. This is just a wonderful conversation, and I want you to get right to it, so I won't say much in this introduction. Mary Piver is a psychologist and best-selling author of 11 books, including Reviving Ophelia, now out in a 25th anniversary edition, and Women Rowing North. Last year, she published a memoir, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. And she's very open in the book about her difficult childhood, about her difficult relationships with her parents, and how she came to be the person she is by always looking for light and love. But I'll let Mary explain it. Let's jump right in. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Debbie. I'm really happy to be here. I've just loved your book, books, plural, I should say. Um, And there were so many things that just struck me and, I don't know, just caught in my head and in my, in my chest as I was reading it. I just loved it. Um, In your new book, uh, A Life in Light, you say, my knowledge about happiness comes from being someone who has struggled with sadness and anxiety much of my life. Well, first of all, I wanted to just applaud when I read that because I can relate. But tell us a little bit more about what you mean. Well, I've always thought that uh, it would be impossible to be an expert on happiness if if uh, one had been happy all their lives. Uh, because actually what teaches us the skills to be happy are the ways we figure out how to dig out of suffering and respond resiliently to life events. And if, uh, like me, uh, you or your listeners are anxious people or have struggled with depression, my guess is already you've developed a pretty good set of skills to be happy. I think happiness is very much a choice and a set of skills, and they're both very important. For example, just staying with the choice part, I say in my book, Women Roy North, attitude isn't any, everything, but it's almost everything. Mm-hmm. And if uh, if you're in the mindset of, I, I want this to be a good day, I, I want to start my day looking forward to it as opposed to dreading it. I want to start my day uh, remembering what I'm grateful for. I want to start my day setting my intention to look for things that will make me happy. I do this every morning. I, I set my intention, for example, to look for love that day or to look for beauty or to look for love and beauty. And these kinds of intentions, uh, we find what we look for. So if we start out with a positive set, we're much more likely to see what we're looking for in the external world. Mm. You also talk a a fair amount about um, Buddhism, uh, which you've, remind us kind of when you got into that and developed a, a Buddhist practice. Well, I went to uh, Berkeley in the 60s, and I took a course in Eastern religions. There were quite a few people at that time, 
reading Alan Watts and uh, some of the early Buddhist writers. But then I pretty much didn't study Buddhism or think much about it until 2002. And at that point, I had what I describe in, in my book, Seeking Peace, as meltdown. And the meltdown was basically I'd been on the road way too much. I'd spent more days in hotel rooms than my own bedroom the year before. And I was I was tired. I was uh, lonesome. I just wanted to go home. And uh, the particular incident that triggered my decision to go home and let me know I was in trouble was I was driving north in Ohio to a little town with a community college. And this town was, it had taken three little commuter flights to get there. And then we had to drive, my husband's my manager, we had to drive a couple hours to get there. And we stopped for something to eat in a little cafe that didn't look good, but it was the only cafe. And uh, it had a couple dead flies in the window. And I'd been reading Fast Food Nation at that point on the plane. And when I went into this cafe, I ordered a bowl of chili. And when I got this chili, I thought, this chili tastes like shit. And <laughs> I, I thought, yeah. either I'm eating shit or I'm so discouraged and, and uptight that I think I'm eating shit. But whichever it is, I'm getting off the road for a while. And uh, I finished that job and came home and we canceled out some work over the winter. And I, I just stayed home. I sat by my fire with my cat and read. And uh, I found when I read psychology, I found myself feeling damaged and uh, diagnosed and other than a normal human. But when I went to Buddhism, when I turned to Buddhism to read, I found myself a member of an enormous community across time and space of people who had suffered and struggled to figure out how do we avoid suffering. And the, the reading was very calming to me. I started meditating at that time. It was very calming to me. And by now I'm in a Buddhist Sangha and have been for many years. So it's been one of the things I say about Buddhism is it's a wonderful set of skills for being happy. Uh, one of the basic tenets of Buddhism is um, we have more than enough to be happy in every moment. And there's a lot of emphasis on learning how to feel that way. That's been very helpful to me. I, Mary, you seem like a very polite person. So I was so taken aback when I read that. The soup well, like, I think you actually said fecal matter or something. I probably did stuff. say fecal matter. And, you know, I don't know if I should say shit on your show. Oh, no, it's but, fine. <laughs> but yeah, it was shit. It tasted yeah, like no, shit. I, I was, um, and I also. <laughs> I am polite. Well, I, I was struck by that. Um, so, of course, you start, you do talk quite a bit about your childhood in, in your in your memoir and about your parents and your mother, you describe, who was a physician, who became a physician while you were a child, uh, was absent a lot because she was working. And your dad was also absent for a good deal. But then he was around and he was kind of insensitive and not very supportive and you're right that he once said to you, um, 
with your figure, Mary, and big nose, you will never marry. Oh, yeah, he did. He did. And of course, it hurt me. It was very cruel. And um, fortunately, it didn't turn out to be true. Uh, when I uh, started dating, I realized he was distorted in his thinking. To put that particular quote in a broader context, um, I loved my parents very, very much. I loved both of them. My dad was an extremely traumatized World War II vet and Korean War vet. And his father had gone insane. And his um, grandfather had killed his great-grandfather. Oh. So there was a very dark history in my father's family. And he was a great warrior about all of his own children being okay. And I think that particular remark said a great deal more about him than about me yeah. and about his tendency to catastrophize. He could be violent. He could be uh, verbally abusive. He had plenty of flaws. Um, but I also tell a story in the book about going fishing with him down on the Gulf of Mexico and how we're on a dock on a little island off the coast of Texas. And he's got a beer and he's bought me an orange crush. And there's lights on the water. There's the slapping of the water against the dock. My dad is singing. He's happy, singing some old jazz songs. And the beautiful moment was so important to me that I stored it. I stored it so I'd have it the rest of my life. And i that's when I first learned that skill of mm. if you're having an extraordinary moment, chunk it into your brain and keep it there forever. And I remember everything about that moment. I remember how happy and relaxed my dad was. I remember the smell of the water. I remember the, the little boats kind of rocking out in the water. And I remember the little nubby orange and brown jumper I had on. And I had some beautiful moments with both my folks. Uh, one of the points of A Life in Light, it's a themed memoir about light and time. And one of the points about it is we're always flipping back and forth between light and darkness. I use a Japanese word, komorebi, which is the dappling of leaves between sunlight and darkness. And I think that's how our lives are. I think that's how most people are. And I wanted to, I wanted to write about how it is in a world that is at least as full of shadows as sunlight, we find the light and we keep focused on the light. And so this book, A Light in Life, is just really a collection of stories about my finding the light. And some of the situations from my childhood are very difficult. Um, but in every story, th there's, there's something that saved me. And we can always find that something that saves us. Yes, and you do explain that so well in the book. I wanted to ask you, if I may, sure. about, because you talk about this, about forgiving your parents. Um, and I think you say that your brothers, you have two brothers, I think, have not been able to or didn't, weren't able to do this forgiving of both your mother and father the same way that you did. And um, and I, I have sort of a personal interest in asking you this, but how have you, how were you able to do that given that you had difficult relationships with your 
with both you your, know, mom and your father. You know, first of all, I'm not a very angry person. I, I never was very angry at anyone in my entire life. I'm just not wired that way. But the other thing, I think part of it comes from being a psychologist and an empathic person and just realizing that my parents, like almost everyone else, did the best they can. My father had grown up in very difficult straits. My mother, I think, in retrospect, was probably on the autism spectrum somewhere. And they just, they were both good people. They weren't very well equipped to be parents. Uh, my mother was a very good parent when she was around. She just wasn't around very much. And she wasn't a very good human problem solver. Uh, one of the things I found most traumatic about my childhood is our family split up a lot. I mm. had a year without my mother when I was six. It was very hard on me. And we know from research that if you have time without your mother when you're a child, you're wired for anxiety, that having that primary attachment person uh, out of your life is is just something that's going to go very deep in children. My father was gone a lot. He was in the Korean War when I was um, two. He went over there. And so I lived with one brother but not the other for a while. There was just a lot of that. And so they weren't particularly good at keeping our family together and they weren't particularly present. But another thing I would say about that in terms of my own feelings is I grew up to be a very independent person and a very competent person because there wasn't anyone taking particularly good care of me on a regular basis. And I also grew up around many loving people. I write a lot about my grandmother. Who, mm. uh, for example, one of the stories I tell about her was she always had a cookie jar. And one time I went in and this cookie jar was filled with ginger snaps. And I said, oh, grandmother, that's my favorite cookie. And she said, well, I know it is. That's why they're in the jar. I made them for you. And I remember just my heart just turned golden at that point. I, I had never experienced before someone doing something like that for me. And it was just a wonderful feeling. And she called me my Mary. Mm. And she would say, why don't you help me with dishes? And let's do them real slowly. And we would talk while we did dishes. Or we would go out and sit under her ash tree and shell peas and talk. And she she just really loved me into existence. She just managed to tell me I was an important person, a special person and yeah. worthy of all this kindness. Well, I was just so struck by those kinds of memories. I love them in the book. And also I just was admiring that you were able to forgive your parents saying, as you did that, you know, they did the best they could. Uh, my, um, my mother just died this past year. My father's still alive. So it's uh, wrestling with a few things at, at my end because they weren't always loving parents. But you talk about, I just have to ask you about this, your, your near drowning experience in Costa Rica. And I was absolutely astonished when I read that because I had a similar near drowning experience very recently uh, in Mexico, on the coast, the um, you know, the western coast, the Pacific, on a vacation with, uh, also again with my family, and it was so 
weird and sudden and searing. And I've just found I, we don't really talk about it, but um, but I did write something about it for Substack. But you, you wrote that you think what saved you was surrendering. So I mean, if unless it's yeah. just too, too awful yeah. to talk about, can you say no, a little bit more no. about it? First of all, the two main causes of death for visitors to Costa Rica are crocodiles and drowning. It's a little bit of a dangerous country over on the West Coast, not on the East Coast where most people go. We were on the West Coast up by Nicaragua. But uh, we, we, uh, my daughter and my daughter-in-law and I were out bobbing around beyond the white caps. And we got caught in a uh, riptide. Um, or it may have just been an extremely strong outgoing tide uh, because we couldn't swim out of it the way you can swim out of a riptide if you go to the side. And when we realized, what we realized was our uh, the top halves of our body were moving in a different way than the bottom of our halves, of our bodies. And we realized when we looked up how far we were from shore, we were much further from shore than we had any idea. We had really been pulled out to sea. So we split up and just all started heading to shore the best way we knew how. There was no way to help each other. We just all started swimming. We're all good swimmers. And of course, I was worried about them, but I mainly had the job to take care of myself. And so I swam and swam. I swam over to the side. I was still caught in this. Uh, I swam as fast as I could. And then I'd look up and the shore was just as far away. And eventually I realized I was running out of energy. And the only way I, I could possibly survive this was if I just floated on my back until somebody found me. So I flipped over to float on my back. And uh, I was just waiting. My son had seen this. He's a very good swimmer. He used to be a lifeguard. I figured eventually he'd figure out uh, how to get a boat uh, and come get me, come find me or an airplane or whatever. And so I was just floating there and thinking, I'm going to be here a long time, but I can float a long time in the ocean. And then I realized I heard the breakers, which meant I was going in. And it was a kind of a metaphor in a way for a lot of the messages in uh, A Life in Light, which is so oftentimes this this letting go of control and and just surrendering to the situation and just waiting and watching it is a very good way of self-rescue, whether it's a rescue in ocean water, whether it's a rescue of a, a difficult conversation at a meal, uh, this 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 resting and stopping. Stopping fighting, stopping the struggle can be such a good thing, you know. I'm glad you've survived your situation. Yes, Debbie. well, it was actually right, right near the beach. But anyway, um, gosh, I can really see how you would be. Are you still practicing as a therapist? I could see me be a wonderful therapist. I'm thinking I'd love to be sitting right there now. Oh, you just talk you. to me about everything. <laughs> thank you. No, I'm not. I, I stopped. I, I've now been a writer, full-time writer, longer than I've been a therapist. I was a oh. therapist for 30 years, but I've been a writer for 45. So um, I, I just write now. And I no longer do much speaking either. I write and I enjoy my life, uh, which is wonderful. Yeah. Well, so you're now 76. By the way, how old were you in, in, during the near drowning thing? Was that just a couple of years ago? Oh, I was probably se 70, I'd okay. say. That's that's my age, 70, that that young 70. Okay. Um 
So I just thought this might be useful for, you know, for listeners. So you're now 76. What are the, you know, what are the best things right now? What are the worst things? In other words, what are the ingredients of a happy life? Well, for you right now, but you can say, you could say it's for other people. So but I guess start with start with the good. Well, uh, the good is almost all of it. Uh, I I enjoy every day. I know how to build a good day. Um, I start my day with journaling and gratitude, uh, setting my intentions. Um, I have a day usually with friends, with a lot of reading, with exercise, some volunteer work. Sometimes other kinds of interesting work come my way. I'm very lucky that way. Um, I'm not in a hurry. I think maybe one of my favorite things is I rarely have to set an alarm. I rarely have to move quickly. And the slower we move, the more we see and the more opportunity we have to be kind. Um, If we're in a hurry, it's hard to slow down, to notice that the checker at the grocery store looks tired and make an effort to cheer up a little bit as we go through the line. And I I have more time like that. I've lived in the same town 50 years, uh, over 50 years, actually. So I have a lot of people in my life I've known a very long time. And that's that's a wonderful thing. I have a good family. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. So mostly, I would say the joys are just the ability to live every day um, with contentment, with amazement. I know how to be amazed. Um, I know how to... Uh, stop and look at a branch on a tree and and become blissed out by it, uh, which is a really important skill that most people learn when they're older. Um, the, the difficult thing, uh, there's two things I want to say about difficulty. One is I have a kind of a dual consciousness now. And as I describe my life, it sounds like a very good life. It is a very good life. But The other consciousness I have is where the world is at, the darkness in the world, the darkness in terms of climate change. And uh, that double consciousness uh, is tricky. It, it It takes some skill. It takes some intentionality. To, to learn how to, on one hand, stay awake, stay present for the suffering of the world. And on the other hand, um, be joyous and, and, and look forward to every day as an opportunity to experience the freshness of a new day. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is I'm a, a social person. I've, I've been someone, I think in part because my parents weren't around much, but I figured out very early on that what I wanted to be happy was love. And I was just a love-seeking organism. And I'd find people to love me uh, wherever I went. And I built up, I, I really spent, I would say, the first six, six decades of my life building up attachments, friends and groups and communities and family gatherings. And I'm a great organizer. Uh, I'm the captain of the blueberry pickers. I like to go out and have fun with people. But the last years of, of uh, life are different. And the, the skill becomes learning to detach, learning to detach with grace because the adorable grandchildren grow up and go off to their own lives. Um, the uh, pets die. Friends 
who've always been wonderful to spend time with start having dementia or Parkinson's and aren't as able to converse and enjoy time. Uh, and so the, and people die, people die all the time that I know in my life. And so one of the, the skills is, is learning to be present for all that and, and experience the grief that that brings on learning to be present for the friends and the family that are struggling. And on the other hand, still be happy, still be happy. I tell a story in A Life in Light about a, a story from Buddhism. And Buddha and his followers are sitting in a meadow. And a man comes running up, screaming and tearing his hair. And he's going, uh, have you seen my cows? Have you seen my cows? And um, Buddha and his followers look at each other and go, no, we haven't seen your cows. And the man runs off screaming, I am ruined, I am ruined. And Buddha turns to his followers and says, aren't you lucky you have no cows? Now, that's a very important story to me. Because one of the things I think that's important as an older person is knowing how to be happy with whatever we have, whatever it is. Knowing how that under any circumstances, we can make our lives workable. A friend of mine, Jane Jarvis, said this so beautifully. She was old. She was in a little tiny apartment in New York City, just a room, really, looking out on a wall. She'd been a, a famous pianist, concert pianist, jazz pianist. And I, I had gone to visit her. And as I was leaving, I said, Jane, are you happy? Are you happy here? Uh, thinking about how circumscribed her life was uh, since her great days of travel and performance. And she said, Mary, I'm very happy. She said, I have everything I need to be happy. And she pointed to her skull right between my ears. And, and really that is, is the task of a, a, an older person is learning how to be happy right between our ears. I love that. I was going to ask a, a mundane question. Well, I'll ask it anyway. I think you said in, a, in an interview I read that you've given up I wondered if you have any regrets about this. You've given up ice skating, cross-country skiing, and I guess biking because of fears of falling. So that's a a negative. Oh, yeah. Are you just, are you saying, you know, that's, you know, worrying about that or just tell me honestly, do you miss that a little bit? Oh, yeah. I loved cross-country skiing. And in Nebraska, I can ski. I live by a park, so I can ski right out of my house and onto this beautiful area to ski. And I don't do that anymore. Yeah, sure. I miss it. I wish my hands worked better than they do. My hands don't work very well. But uh, I don't dwell on that. Um, for example, last summer, my husband and I bought our first kayaks and started going kayaking. And there's always some way to have a good time. Uh, there's always something to enjoy. Uh, I can still swim. I go to a water aerobics class and jump around with a lot of older women and have a great time. And uh, I walk with my friends. There's plenty of ways to be outside in the natural world having a good time. And uh, like most people my age, I start being afraid of falling. And the way not to be afraid of falling is by a kayak. You're not going to hurt yourself in a kayak. Yeah. Is there anything I forgot to ask you? Well, this has been a wonderful interview. And 
The only thing I would like to leave your readers with is I hope that this book, A Life in Light, helps people see some of the ways, uh, some of the skills they can develop to be happier, to look toward the light. And I think we all have the capacity to find the light within the world and the light within ourselves. Uh, if only we, if only we uh, look and if we have the intention to do so. Oh, Mary, well, I'm feeling very inspired after speaking with you. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Debbie. And that's it for this episode of the Bold Age Podcast. Help us spread the word. Tell a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a comment or question, send it to theboulderpodcast at gmail.com. I promise to respond. Till next time, I'm Debbie Weil. Thank you.